0: Hey listeners, we'll get to unpacking Israeli history in just a second, but this is producer Rifki Stern jumping in for a moment to ask you for a favor. We want to hear from you directly. Who are you? What do you like? What do you hate? What shows don't exist in the world that you wish were out there? Tell us everything. Fill out our two-minute survey. Seriously, two minutes. The more detailed, the better, but we'll take anything. You can find the survey in the show notes of this episode or at this easy website. JewishUnpack.com slash U-I-H survey. U-I-H being Unpacking Israeli History. I'll say it one more time. JewishUnpack.com slash U-I-H survey. Okay, on to the show.
1: Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to israeli history this season of unpacking israeli history is generously sponsored by barbara summer and alan fisher and marcy and andrew spitzer and this episode is generously sponsored by the jewish federation of northeastern new york and the jewish federation of northern new jersey before we start i have a favor if you haven't yet please share unpacking israeli history with your family friends and even strangers at starbucks Okay, maybe not that last one. But sharing the pod with your people really helps new listeners find the show and spread our message of a complex and our favorite word, nuanced Israeli history. Okay, Yalla, let's do this. We,
0: the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the
1: Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're home. When my wife Razie was pregnant with our eldest child, like most first-time parents, we spent lots of time thinking about what to name the baby. After months of debate, we found the perfect name, a name that encapsulated the love that engulfed us before he even opened his eyes, Eyal Yitzchak, the strength of Isaac. At his bris, I gave an intense speech, explaining to our guests that Eyal was named after my grandfather, Saba Irving, whose Hebrew name was Yitzchak a World War II veteran who fought the Nazis on the shores of Normandy, France, as a proud member of the U.S. Navy. Through his stint in the Navy and upon returning to the U.S., he maintained his strong religious convictions. Sava Irving had just passed away, and we hoped he would be a model for the kind of quiet, glowing inner strength our son would need as he navigated this world as a proud Jew. It's a good story, right? I even believed it myself until my wife set me straight a few months later and told me I missed part of the reason we named him Al. In addition to your grandfather's inspirational story, you know why I picked the name Al, right? She asked. Turns out, I didn't. Despite the months we had spent binge watching *Covert Affairs*, I had somehow failed to notice that the cutest male character was a Mossad operative named Al. But. My wife definitely noticed, and so our son was named after a good-looking fictional spy. Thanks, Razie. So I guess you could say that I owe a lot to the Mossad, Israel's legendary intelligence agency whose exploits put James Bond to shame. And I'm not alone. Because the Mossad operates in secrecy, it's impossible to count the lives it has saved or the wars it has averted. But suffice it to say that Jews around the world owe a significant debt of gratitude to the Mossad, even if they don't know it. Name a daring mission, and the Mossad has done it. Hunting down Nazis? Check. Smuggling refugees from hostile countries to Israel? Yup. Going undercover to collect intelligence in enemy countries? Oh yeah. Sneaking into enemy countries to assassinate some key figures all while dressed in drag? Huh? Yeah, we'll talk about that soon. You may have noticed that a lot of the Mossad's actions take place in, uh, less than friendly territory. Not to shock you, but the world's only Jewish state had historically had a lot of enemies. When the Mossad was officially established in 1949, Israel had already been attacked by every single one of its neighbors, plus a couple more countries for good measure. Even Yemen tried to get into the action. Yemen, what's up with that? These countries failed at their stated goal of pushing Israel into the sea. But Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion knew the next attack wasn't far off. To survive in its rough neighborhood, the Jewish state needed to get crafty. It was never going to be the biggest kid in the room, but it could certainly be the wisest. So Ben-Gurion established not one but three intelligence agencies, all of which operate today. Number one, Agath Hamodi'in, or Amman. Aman is responsible for military intelligence. Number two, Sheirut Habitachon Haklali, A.K.A. the Shin Bet, A.K.A. Shabak. They're responsible for internal security. And number three, you guessed it, Mossad Merkazi Modi'in Ulatafkidim MiYuhadim, the Central Institute for Intelligence and Special Operations, known by its monument, Mossad established to give spy novelists decades of material and okay to gather intelligence and perform covert operations in foreign countries. That's a usefully vague descriptor that sucks all the life out of a story, huh? Covert operations. But I'm using this term precisely because the Mossad operates in ambiguous territory. The agency answers to the prime minister and the prime minister only. As Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman explains it, Israeli intelligence from the outset occupied a shadow realm, one adjacent to, yet separate from, the country's democratic institutions. By definition, the agency operates in the dark. There's no such thing as transparency when you're, you know, involved in international espionage. But the Mossad doesn't just send undercover spies or double agents into the field to gather information. Because its agents, in conjunction with the military, use the intelligence they gather. And when intelligence says that someone is trying to hijack a plane full of civilians or blow up a bus packed with school kids or kidnap a soldier, you don't just sit back and let him do it. As the Talmud tells us in Sanhedrin 72a, If someone comes to kill you, rise and kill him first. It's an uncomfortable thought, especially for people like me. When I see a garden snake here in Florida, which is uncomfortably often, I instinctively scream, crazy, come help. But if Israel depended on diplomacy alone, it wouldn't exist. 26 countries don't recognize the state, and inconveniently, some of those countries are right next door. And some of those countries, like say one that rhymes with Shiran or Shiran, depending on your pronunciation, we won't name names, funnel money to terrorist groups we think murdering civilians is a righteous political statement. A country surrounded by enemies needs to have eyes everywhere. So the Mossad collects all the intel it can, and then it strikes. Today I'm going to tell you three stories of the Mossad. Stories so wild you'd think I was making them up, but I assure you they're all very real. And they're all examples of the lengths that Israel will go to keep its citizens safe. Before diving in, I want to express my deep gratitude to Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman and his deeply researched one-of-a-kind book, Rise and Kill First. The bulk of our research came from this book. And with that, welcome to the shadowy world of international espionage. Act 1, Operation Spring of Youth. April 1973. Israel was still basking in the miraculous victory of the Six-Day War. It even participated in Eurovision for the first time, earning a respectable fourth place. In other words, the pariah of the Middle East was getting its first tantalizing taste of normalcy. Or at least, a veneer of normalcy. Because just a year before, the world watched in stunned horror as Palestinian terrorists murdered 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. Closer to home, the PLO and its various offshoots were still trying very hard to make good on their pledge to destroy Israel. In other words, everything felt normal till you turned on the news. For the Mossad, of course, nothing is ever normal. After Munich, the agency was busy with Operation Wrath of God, the fittingly poetic name for the Israeli campaign to destroy Black September, the PLO offshoot whose ideas of a political statement was massacring athletes on live TV. Wrath of God hadn't been going super well till that point. But in October of 1972, a valuable Lebanese source passed along some juicy info, like the exact locations of the PLO offices, command posts, and weapons workshops in Beirut. The home addresses of four PLO big shots. Among them was the PLO head of intelligence who had helped to plan Munich. Amazing, right? But the intel was just the beginning. An address is not an action plan. Are the buildings alarmed? Do the PLO honchos have security? How much time does it take to get from PLO headquarters to the evacuation point? How much noise could you reasonably make before a neighbor calls the police? People's lives depend on these tiny, trivial, granular details. So the Mossad sent an operative named Yael to fill in the blanks, and she blew the entire thing wide open. She told her Lebanese friends that she had come to Beirut to research a potential TV series, which is an excellent cover story, and not only because it makes you sound glamorous and interesting, Yael's research gave her free reign to roam the city, take pictures, and casually stalk her neighbors, who just happened to be high-ranking PLO operatives. Yael's incredible intel answered some burning questions, but the mission was still hellishly complex. Mossad still had to figure out how to get an elite combat unit to navigate a densely packed foreign city, silently bypass security, blow up a bunch of PLO offices, kill four of the PLO's top brass, and escape without hurting civilians or attracting unwanted attention. Ooh, I'm tired just listening to all of that. So the IDF called in future Prime Minister Ehud Barak, then the commander of Sayeret Matkal, the army's most elite force. While Barack's later political career was quite divisive, everyone agrees that this guy was a unique military genius. His plan was fittingly simple. 15 men, multiple targets, get in, shoot, collect documents, detonate, get out. Oh, and half the force would be dressed like women so as not to arouse suspicion. Yep, you heard that right. A pack of burly dudes walking around at 11 p.m. That's sus, as the kids say. But a few couples arm in arm? they wouldn't warrant a second glance. Well, hopefully, because some of these guys were not pretty. Barak's unit wasn't exactly thrilled about this plan, and not just because it required them to wear high heels. Amitai Nachmani and Amit ben Horeen protested that they hadn't joined Sayeret Matkal to become assassins. But instead of rebuking them for questioning his authority, Barak applauded their doubt. He later said that he wanted, quote, men with opinions, men who ask questions, who are not satisfied with a mere command to execute, but also demand to know the logic behind it. Now, this is me editorializing from my proverbial armchair and my literal mic. But I'd also imagine that Barak appreciated his soldier's finely honed moral compass. Taking a life is no small thing, no matter how much blood is on your enemy's hands. And if I were a commander of a secret assassination, I'd take comfort in knowing that my soldiers understood the weight of the mission. If nothing else a reluctant assassin is unlikely to hurt a civilian. Eventually, Barak convinced the two men. Operation Spring of Youth was officially a go. I'm taking a short break from the episode to tell you about the Digital Storytellers Lab from the Jewish Writers Initiative. Do you have an idea for a video, a podcast, or another storytelling idea that just needs to get out? Applications are open now for the Digital Storytellers Lab, an eight-month fellowship that gives digital storytellers the opportunity to kickstart the development of new narrative digital audiovisual media exploring Jewish themes. Fellows will attend in-person and virtual workshops and receive a stipend of $20,000 for their participation. This sounds awesome. For more information and to apply, visit JWinitiative.comslash digital storytellers. Applications are due soon. They're due June 1st and will be reviewed on a rolling basis. Again, go to JWinitiative.com/slash digital storytellers to apply.
0: Hey listeners, you may already know that you're listening to a podcast from Unpacked. But did you know that Unpacked is so much more than just podcasts? Like our name suggests. We unpack stuff, specifically trending topics surrounding Israel and what it means to be Jewish in today's world. From the obvious, like Jewish holidays and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to the more obscure, like which, if any, superheroes are actually Jewish, and the origin story behind the Star of David. You can check us out on the web, articles, videos, memes, and more. Find us at jewishunpacked.com or follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at jewishunpacked. See you there
1: on april 9, 1973 a team of israel's most elite agents floated silently toward a private beach in beirut and once in lebanon the commandos split into groups one group would eliminate the plo's offices the other would eliminate the plo's men arm in arm half in drag the assassins wandered beirut's luxurious neighborhoods barak later recalled they had never seen such a beautiful city it's kind of astonishing to me that he was able to notice the architecture But the commandos were supremely confident in their intel. Here is commando Uri Milstein recounting his experience as one of the assassins. I want to emphasize that we had excellent intelligence. I never had intelligence this good, not before this mission and not after. Because of Yael and another agent who was also in the area and lived close by. The information was incredible. I was in shock. We knew about their bodyguards and the building's concierge and the neighbors. The mission was quick just as Barak had planted. The commandos bypassed PLO security, which was literally sleeping on the job. Within minutes, the targets were dead. But when a guard on the street woke up, the detail covering the street had to shoot him. The kill was silent until a bullet hit the car's horn and woke up the entire street. Oops. With Lebanese police hurtling toward the neighborhood, the Israelis were in a race against time. They grabbed as many documents as they could from the PLO apartments before dealing with the police. Yael watched the shootout from her window. It was over quickly. A few bursts of automatic gunfire, and the Israelis were back in their cars, racing toward the beach. Meanwhile, across town, another unit raided a Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Palestine, aka PFLP, building. Unfortunately, they didn't know the building had two security details, and before they could even enter, three soldiers were down. But Commander Amnon Lipkin Shahak refused to give up the mission. His men attached explosives to the building, and then they got the heck out. From the evacuation point, they saw the building collapse in a spectacular plume of dust and rubble. They would find out later that 35 PFLP members had been inside. The Middle East woke up the next day to a rearranged reality. From a Beirut post office, a foreign TV writer, aka Yael, sent a letter to a friend detailing the shocking events of the night before. It was horrible, she wrote. Those terrible Israelis were really here. For the first time, I can see why there's so much hatred for that country. In invisible ink, she added, Great show last night. Hats off. Seriously, any film producers out there, call me. We've got to make this into a movie. In the grand halls of the Lebanese parliament building, the entire government tendered its resignation, keenly aware of its failure to protect its people against Israeli sneak attacks not to mention its failure to curb PLO activity, which would lead to a much bigger Israeli invasion a decade later. Listen to last season's episode about Sovereign Shatila for more on that. In Israel, Ehud Barak's wife woke up surprised to find him fast asleep next to her, the previous night's makeup still smeared on his face. And in newspapers and coffee shops, radio broadcasts, and living rooms, the Arab world began to grapple with a dawning epiphany. Israel, the neighborhood runt was punching far above its weight, and it could strike anywhere, at any time. The legend of the Mossad was beginning to form. Act two: The Power of Sadness 1977. The Yom Kippur War is four years in the past. Case with Egypt is on the horizon, and in the Prime Minister's chair sits friend of the pod, I wish, Menachem Begin, up to his ears in PLO nonsense. After facing a genocide, a cruel colonial mandate, a spate of riots and pogroms, and two wars that threatened to annihilate the nascent Jewish state, the newly minted Prime Minister was ever vigilant for the next existential threat. Unfortunately, the Jewish state had many of those. The PFLP had been terrorizing Israel since December of 1967. Their greatest hits included a massacre in Lode Airport, the murder of 21 students in Ma'alot High School, and the hijacking of Air France Flight 139 to Entebbe. Okay, last time. Check out that episode. PFLP co-founder Wadi Haddad had been in the Mossad's crosshairs for years. But the man seemed to have nine lives. An RPG fired through his window had barely scratched him, a bomb dropped on a Beirut stadium had somehow missed him, and getting him at home seemed impossible because his wife and young children were always around. Plus, he lived in Beirut, and killing a high-up official, deep in enemy territory was no trivial thing. So the Mossad had to get creative. They needed something that wouldn't leave marks, something they could deploy from a distance without risking an operative, something that was certain to kill. They needed toothpaste. And for that, they needed Sadness, the codename for an agent who was extremely close to Haddad so close that he, or maybe she, could switch out Haddad's regular toothpaste for an identical tube filled with a slow-acting poison. It would take months of impeccable oral hygiene until the poison reached critical mass, and though it would wreak havoc on the body, it would leave no identifiable trace. Haddad must have had great teeth, because the poison worked exactly as it was supposed to. He lost weight, then hair, then blood, his doctors couldn't find a single thing wrong with him except for the fact that he was dying a slow and painful death. They suspected, but could not prove that he had been poisoned. The PLO appealed to the Stasi, East Germany's secret police. But even the best doctors in East Germany couldn't save Haddad. He died in terrible pain. And his New York Times obituary reported the cause of death as cancer, a convenient lie to cover up yet another example of the Mossad's legendary invisible reach. Without Haddad's operational wizardry, the PFLP simply dissolved, proving yet again that targeted assassinations were the cleanest, most moral way to eliminate a threat. No war, no civilian casualties, just one man killed by his toothpaste. But not every assassination can be this clean. Pun intended. Part 3. Oops.
0: Now, as we say, there were two explosions within 10 seconds of each other that went off and uh, these, uh, uh, these, these uh, were then precipitated the search perhaps for a third one and they still will be doing that, no doubt. This
1: moment it will be the end, must be the end of this bloody peace process and the, the government this, who, uh, who created this peace process
0: must be to bring to the court, to, bring to the court,
1: Israelis began burying their dead as the full impact of the suicide bombing sunk in. Sami Melka's widow joined 12 other families in mourning a life extinguished in a flash, and in this atmosphere grief can quickly turn to anger and the desire for revenge. July 30th, 1997. The Oslo peace process is all but dead. Check out our episode on Oslo for more on that. As a string of terror attacks ripped through Israel, newly elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was not having it. After all, he'd been elected for his commitment to security. He needed to deal a serious blow to the Palestinian terror apparatus. The target was Khaled Mashal, deputy head of Hamas's political bureau, working remotely from Amman. Jordan and Israel had signed a peace agreement in 1994, but their relationship wasn't exactly warm. The operation had to be swift and silent. No one should suspect that Mashal had died of anything but natural causes. So Israeli scientists chose fentanyl to get the job done. Nerd corner alert. If you've been paying attention to the opioid crisis currently devastating America, you've definitely heard of its analog fentanyl, hundred times stronger than morphine. Once the fentanyl was administered, Michal's life would be over in a matter of hours. It wouldn't hurt. He'd just get really, really tired. His breathing would slow. His heart would stop. It would look like a heart attack or a stroke. Unusual in a 41-year-old man, but not unheard of. Just a tragic, natural death. This time, though, there was no inside man to administer the fatal dose, and Michelle was notoriously skittish about his security he'd probably notice that some stranger stuck a needle in his arm on the street. So, proving once again that science is magic, the Israelis decided to release the poison through an ultrasound device. Don't ask me how it works. Witchcraft, probably. Michelle would feel a puff of damp air. But when he turned around, all he'd see were two bumbling tourists opening a well-shaken can of soda. They'd apologize for spraying him, He'd roll his eyes and go on with his day, and they'd return to Israel knowing that they'd struck a major blow to Hamas. No one would suspect for a second that the two dopes with the soda can were in fact highly trained operatives administering a deadly poison. It sounds brilliant, right? Simple. Impossible to trace. Kind of fun to practice. Unfortunately, things went south almost immediately. The agents were still practicing when another terror attack claimed five lives. Netanyahu needed heads to roll, now. So even though they weren't fully ready and their cover stories were paper thin, eight agents headed for Jordan. Bad move, because they didn't bargain on Mashal's daughter. See, Mashal and his kids enjoyed a deluxe carpool situation. First, his driver dropped him off at the so-called Palestinian Aid Center, an innocuous cover for Hamas's political bureau. After that, the kids would be taken to school, But that day, Mashal's little girl was feeling sentimental. As Mashal exited the car, she chased after him, calling Daddy. The driver, understandably alarmed, chased after her. It would be kind of a funny picture if not for the fact that the driver caught the Mossad agent standing directly behind his boss, arm raised to deal the fatal blow. Of course, the driver had no idea that the agent was wearing an ultrasound device filled with poison. He just thought the guy had a knife. So he shouted, Khaled! Mashal turned around. The agent panicked, sprayed him in the ear. Mashal looked at the agents. The agents looked at him. And then they turned around and ran like hell. In a spectacular bit of bad luck, a Hamas courier named Abu Saif just happened to walk by as this was all going down. He chased the agents down Amman's narrow streets, but it was two against one. The agents should have knocked him out and ran away, but maybe because of the adrenaline, they just kept walloping him. And because downtown Amman was apparently lousy with Palestinian operatives, another former PLO guerrilla fighter was passing by in a taxi as the agents beat the crap out of Abu Sa'id. He took them to the local police station, and they went quietly because they had to. It was either the Jordanian police station or a death by an angry Jordanian mob. At the police station, the agents pretended to be Canadian tourist who had fallen afoul of some random hooligan. But after 10 minutes with the Canadian consul, that cover story fell apart like wet tissue paper. I don't know who those bozos are, the consul said, but I can tell you they aren't Canadians. Okay, maybe I'm paraphrasing that part slightly. The jig was up, and the Israelis were screwed. Hamas, moving fast, had already put out a statement that the Mossad and the Jordanians were in cahoots. Bad news for the king of Jordan, whose relationship to the Palestinians can best be described as uneasy. Israel had been asking its eastern neighbor to do something about Hamas for years, but the sheer number of random Palestinian operatives in the story should demonstrate that the Jordanians had been uh, less than effective in routing Hamas from its borders. So now Israel had a big problem. If Mashal died, Jordan would burn. Its two million Palestinians would make sure of it. If King Hussein wanted to hold onto his crown, he'd have no choice but to publicly execute the agents. Plus, the king strongly suspected there were additional operatives in his country. And it didn't take a genius to figure out they were holed up in the Israeli embassy. The Israelis had a choice. Let Mashal die, condemning their own agents to death, or hand over the antidote and ferry their people out of the country, stat. If you were the prime minister, what would you do? Well, in the words of Moshe Ben David, chief intelligence officer of the Mossad Special Operations Division, there's no room for feelings in this kind of situation. The Israelis handed over the antidote. Michelle recovered quickly, and the two agents came home, bruised but alive. But King Hussein was still royally peeved. See what I did there? He suspended all ties with Israel, leaving six Israeli agents trapped in the embassy. And he was demanding a stiff ransom for their release. He wanted to swap them for a number of Palestinian prisoners, some of whom had Israeli blood on their hands. Among those prisoners was Hamas founder and spiritual leader Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. Quadriplegic and half-blind, Yassin didn't look like anyone's idea of a hard-boiled terrorist, but looks are deceiving. He had masterminded a number of particularly heinous attacks and was serving a life sentence, yet Israel released him, all to get back six operatives. It's a sadly familiar calculus, because the Israeli government does not leave its people behind. But that doesn't mean Netanyahu was happy. In one fell swoop, the Mossad had burned two agents, revealed some of its fancier tricks, pissed off both Jordan and Canada, and released several known murderers. Oh, and as of 2022, Mashal is still alive. To add insult to injury after his release, he spent 13 years as the head of Hamas. Yeesh. Still, one bungle can't stop the world's best intelligence agency. To this day, targeted assassinations remain the Mossad's most reliable weapon. That's Ram Ben Barak, former deputy director of the Mossad, in a 2018 documentary called Mossad and Perfect Spies. Look at what's happening in the world. You'll see that all conventional wars end very badly. Many of the targets can be achieved in different ways, in clandestine ways. Because you can choose to see targeted assassinations as a moral gray area. After all, it's an extrajudicial killing coming when you least expect it. Or you could choose to see targeted assassinations as the most moral in a series of bad options. Because if it's between a targeted assassination and war, and make no mistake, the PLO and PFLP and Hamas were all engaged in a war against Israel, then assassination wins every time one person dies instead of hundreds one building is destroyed instead of dozens civilian casualties are minimized and the risk belongs to the secret agents carrying the safety of an entire state on their soldiers so those are a few stories from inside the mossad if you want more and i hope you do check out ronan bergman's awesome book rise and kill first here are your five fast facts number one Keenly aware of Israel's vulnerability, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion established three intelligence agencies in 1949, Amman, Shabak, and Mossad. Mossad, which focuses on covert operations outside of Israel, answers only to the Prime Minister, raising ethical questions about the agency's MO. Number two, Mossad's weapon of choice has often been targeted assassination, which is quicker, cleaner, and safer than waging a conventional war especially because terror groups are not a conventional target. Number 3. Some of Mossad's targeted assassinations are a spectacular success. During Operation Spring of Youth, future Prime Minister Ehud Barak led a small strike force into the heart of Beirut, where they took down three high-profile PLO members as well as crucial PLO infrastructure. In one of those truth-is-stranger-than-fiction twists, half his men were dressed as women so that no one would suspect a gang of dudes walking through Beirut at night. Number four, other missions require great creativity and advanced technologies. For example, Wadi Haddad, the co-founder of radical terror group PFLP, had managed to escape multiple assassination attempts. So Mossad put a bioweapon in his toothpaste. After his death, the PFLP disintegrated. And number five, sometimes assassinations don't go as planned. Perhaps the most famous fumble was the attempted killing of Khaled Mashal, the Hamas bureau chief and future head of the organization. The Israelis deployed incredible creativity and technology, but a lack of planning and some extraordinary bad luck turned the mission sideways. As a result, eight Mossad operatives got stuck in Jordan, and the Israeli government was forced to hand over the antidote and release a number of high-profile terrorists from prison in exchange for their return. It was a rare and embarrassing bungle for the Mossad. Those are your five fast facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. Human beings tend to glamorize dangerous situations. We're thrilled and impressed by unlikely military victories, by covert operations, by the simple brilliance of a well-executed plot. But behind the surface level glamour, there's something really sad about the fact that we use our amazing, complex brains to think up ways to kill each other. Imagine how much better the world would be if we were able to channel all this bravery and resourcefulness and calculated risk-taking into something else. Art, for example, or biomedicine, or easy ways to make potable water accessible to everyone in the world. I know, I'm about two seconds away from breaking into a very off-key rendition of Imagine. Don't worry, I'm not going to torture you. But I do want us all to acknowledge two complementary truths. The first is that in an ideal world, the Mossad wouldn't need to exist. And the second is that, my God, I'm glad it does. You can and should ponder the ethics of a targeted assassination of bioweapons, of enticing agents to betray their countries, of entering sovereign countries uninvited and killing its high-profile residents. And all of those questions are valid, and whatever response you have to them is valid too. But I hope you'll remember the following, as you're considering the ethics of a targeted assassination. A government has a responsibility to keep its people safe. Period. And as a nation, we're still getting used to the idea that we might have some power after 1900 years without collective power. If that power is deployed carefully, strategically, with the intent of keeping us safe, then I am comfortable standing in the gray area. Actually, I love standing there, and I am grateful, and I think we should all be grateful, for all the agents who shoulder the burdens and make the tough decisions that we might not be able to make. And most of all, I thank Raisi for choosing the name AL. Thank you all for listening one last reminder if you haven't yet subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us grow this podcast community by rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts now it's time for our favorite segment israel nerd talk where we highlight one of you our amazing listeners we get the best emails from you guys and we want to share them with the world this week meet esty esty wrote i'm a high school social studies teacher And I've been using your podcast and the Unpacked videos to teach a crash course in Israeli history to some of our seniors here before they graduate. And I just wanted to say thank you. The videos and lesson plans are incredibly helpful to me and have been so well received by my students. Sadly, I won't be teaching next year. I'm moving to Tel Aviv with my family. But what you are doing at Unpacked is truly so needed and awesome. Esti, first of all, mazal tov on your aliyah. I'm so, so excited for you and your family. And next time I'm in Israel, coffee on me. But the other reason this letter is so awesome to me is that it reminds me that this show and the other content we produce at Unpacked is actually really being used to make a difference for serious education. So listeners, if you're involved in education, check out our site Unpacked.education and be in touch. Maybe we can work together. Don't hesitate. Be like Esty. Send me a message at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out JewishUnpact.com for everything unpack related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places. If you like TikTok, check us out there. If you're an Instagram person, of course there. YouTube, you know where to find us there. Just look for at jewishunpack at all these places. And again, write to me at noam at I'm going to close this episode with a prayer. You won't find it in a siddur or in a synagogue. It's not part of the traditional liturgy. It's only been around since 1973, but it's a prayer nonetheless, written during the Yom Kippur War. And though the war is long over, the song's central entreaty, all we ask for Let It Be remains relevant in our fractured world. I don't have the imagination or the hope to dream of a world where spies aren't necessary and targeted assassinations are a thing of the past, but I hope that future generations do have that hope, as well as the determination to make it happen. Let It Be. This episode was produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz and Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week.
0: Thanks for listening. Remember, please fill out that survey. You can find it in the show notes of this episode or at jewishunpackcom slash survey